So welcome to the From Poverty to Power podcast. Uh, and with me today is um, one of my emerging heroes, I have to say. Yuan Yuan Ang is the most interesting person on all things to do with China. And so it's a very exciting time when she has a new book out. And that's why we're talking today. She has a book called China's Gilded Age, uh, which builds on her previous book, which was How China Escaped the Poverty Trap. And we're going to talk through the book and its implications today. So welcome, Yuan Yuan. Well, thank you very much for having me, Duncan. I'm really excited to be on your podcast. And thank you very much for your support and your very helpful comments on my book when it was in a draft form. It didn't need many comments, I have to say. It was extremely good. Um, so what you're trying to wrestle with in the book is fascinating, which is, once again, China disproves everything we hear from Western political scientists, right? So mm -hmm. you've got people like um, uh, Asimoglu and Robinson uh, uh, saying, you know, China is a blip. China is, has, uh, is going to collapse because it isn't democratic. It has extractive institutions. It doesn't follow the American dream. And therefore, at some time, um, the, the, the country is bound to collapse. And, and political scientists in the West have been saying this for 40 years, and their own societies have been collapsing around them, but China just keeps growing. And, and the, the focus for this book is in particular about corruption, that China has managed to combine mm -hmm. massive levels of corruption with um, uh, high levels of growth. So the first thing, the first thing I want to ask is, is yeah, I, we, we, were discussing, we were chatting before this uh, podcast, um, and I was just saying how hard I find writing books. I take years to recover. It seemed to bang them out. What's it like and why did you write this book in particular? Um, I wrote this book because this is a page, literally a page out of my first book. And there was this part in the first book where I wrote something like, the structural conversion of the economy from rural to urban created a new form of corruption, access money. That is access to the game of fabulous wealth creation. And so this book is the book version of that one line in the first book. And the bigger context is in that first book, I was grappling with the big questions of how economy and institutions mutually evolve over a long time period. And corruption is obviously a big part of the story. How does corruption and capitalism evolve? And as you pointed out, the conventional wisdom is first we eradicate corruption, we get good governance, and then you get economic growth. And the point that I'm trying to make in this book is that's not true, that's a fairy tale. <laughs> And the word fairy tale comes from Hajun Chang, by the way. We'll get back to Hajun. I think. We'll go, yeah, he is, who is brilliant and comes up with the best words. And I thought, yes, it's a fairy tale. And I'm glad you talked about Asimoglu and Robinson as a starting point. Uh, I would say that China is a blip as much as America in the 19th century and the UK in the 18th century is a blip. Right? So, in fact, they're very similar. These three major superpowers. The similarity is that what really happened is that corruption went along with capitalism. And this was manageable because 
corruption evolve into sophisticated transactional forms. That is the real history of capitalism. So, I mean, let's, let's deal with Harjun while we're on this, because when I was reading your book, it reminded me a lot of Harjun's argument on trade policy. So mm. the, 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 the big contribution he made in Kicking Away the Ladder and some other books is instead of saying you need to liberalize trade in order to develop, what yeah. he showed historically is that actually countries develop and then they liberalize trade. So the World yeah. Bank had it exactly the wrong way around. They were doing fairy tales. Have you done something similar that as a country develops, the nature of corruption changes? It doesn't disappear. We'll get on to that, but it changes. That is a great insight. And, and in hindsight, I really regret not citing Hajun on this point. It didn't occur to me that we, didn't, we had this parallel. But you are right. Um, Hajun's argument is um, how did development really happen? And he said it's not because of trade liberalization. If you look at the history of the West, it started with trade protectionism, you know, and industrial policies, all of the things that we criticize in developing countries today. Um, and in a similar way, what my book is arguing is that, you know, how did development really happen? If you look at the history of the West, was it that corruption was eradicated before there was growth? Absolutely not. And so even though this book is focused on China, the final chapter makes a comparison with America's Gilded Age. And if we take history seriously, we find that when America was a developing country, it was massively corrupt and had rapid economic growth and had many parallels with China. So when we look at China, we should not see it as exceptional. We should see it as a life demonstration and a reminder of how history really happened in the West. Nice. All right. Well, so let's get into the detail of the book a bit. So you've got a lovely two by two. I always love two by two. Um, <laughs> yeah. A two by two of kinds of corruption. Do you want to just talk us through what, what the four domains of corruption that you identify are? Sure. My first book tortured me so much because it was so complex that I promised myself in this book, I am going to have a two by two. <laughs> so I did exactly that. Um, the two by two, um, it's a two by two typology of corruption. And I highlight two dimensions. The first is whether the corruption involves elites or non-elites. That's straightforward. And the second dimension is whether the corruption involves theft, so one-way extortion or embezzlement, or if it involves exchanges, so bribery, influence paddling, even lobbying. Right? So once you have the intersection of these two dimensions, you have four categories of corruption. And the first uh, is petty theft. So theft by low-level officials. The second is grand theft, so embezzlement by senior officials and leaders. The third is what I call speed money, which is petty bribes you pay to overcome regulatory barriers or red tape. And then the fourth one is the one I emphasize. I call it access money. So money you pay to access the game of fabulous wealth creation. So these are the four types. And to make it easy to remember, I use the analogy of drugs. So all corruption is bad. They are all like drugs. Uh, but petty theft and grand theft, it's like toxic drugs. It's like drinking bleach. You can't get any benefits out of that. Um, speed money, I compare that to painkillers. It you know, reduces pain and inconvenience, but it doesn't help you grow. 
and excess money are like steroids, anabolic steroids. They help you grow your muscle, uh, grow rapidly, but they come with serious side effects that accumulate over time, and they only erupt in the event of a crisis. So how exactly does excess money lead to growth? Fill, fill in the dots for me. Um, excess money leads to growth in the sense, in several ways. Uh, it essentially functions as an incentive system for politicians and capitalists to work together to stimulate and engage in economic activities. So building, construction, investment, loans, and so forth. And this is particularly important in the context of an emerging economy, whether it's China's uh, whether it's China in the reform era or America in the 19th century, where that process of growth required a great deal of heavy sunk costs. So you need to build massive infrastructures, for example. right? And all of that, um, how do you induce capitalists to pay out all of that money uh, to create this uh, infrastructure? You, in a sense, overpay them. Right? So access money gives them this opportunity to um, have uh, excessive loans, to have um, uh, cheap uh, interest rates, uh, to extract great rents for this process. And then in that process, they do create economic activities, spillovers into the rest of the economy, uh, which translates into GDP growth and translates into lifting some 700 million people out of poverty. But in the process, in the process, it also creates a small minority of super, super rich people who are connected with super powerful officials. So is this, so, what, so, so let's get on to the politics of this, which is really interesting. So in your view, does the government have a deliberate uh, focus that they want to in, encourage access money corruption and discourage the other kinds? Is that is that something that a, an official would recognize when they talk to you about this or when they read your book? I don't think that there was a grand blueprint to begin with. But if you look at the macro politics in China, even though it was not stated as a policy, it was very clear to the reformers in China, in particular Deng Xiaoping, who is the, you know, the architect of market reforms in China, that he wanted to, um, he wanted to do two things. He wanted to keep the party united, that's one. And number two, he wanted to convince the communist officials to all embrace capitalism. And so he set up the system in such a way that the officials have something personally to gain from a transition to a market economy. And he did certain formal changes, such as financial decentralization. But then there is also the unstated reward system, which is that in this transition to capitalism, the officials are going to benefit the most. And, and this is yeah. both junior officials and the top guys, but different kinds of corruption for each, presumably. Yes, and this is for everyone in the system, which is what I find remarkable myself. And that is why in this book, I make a distinction between profit sharing among the top leaders and profit sharing among rank and file bureaucrats. Um, it, 
I describe the Chinese bureaucracy in the reform era as functioning in a highly capitalist way, which is surprising because it's communist in name. Um, but how it basically works is the top leaders engage in profit sharing in the sense that their jurisdiction is like their own fiefdoms in which um, when the when the city becomes richer, they themselves extract rents from it. That's obvious. The surprising part I find is that even rank and file bureaucrats, um, their compensation is systematically tied to economic performance in the city and in their agencies. So they've so got this, yeah. aligned incentives. They have aligned incentives. They have aligned incentives in a, in a systematic way. Uh, and that is brazenly capitalist. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> has the book been published in China? Uh, no. Okay. Even the first one hasn't. Still? Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. I guess we better not talk about that. Okay. <laughs> um, so I want to get, I mean, I would love to go into more detail on this, um, Yuan Yuan, but I think we need to move on a little bit to a couple okay. of other topics. I mean, Whenever you say, oh, look, corruption has this positive outcome for growth, you mm -hmm. immediately get pigeonholed as someone who's pro-corruption, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there was a discussion on the blog after, after I reviewed the book about this. So in your view, is corruption ever a good thing? I'm so glad you asked so that I have an opportunity to talk about this. And I understand. I understand that when one challenges the conventional wisdom that all corruption is bad for growth, instinctively, you know, we think this is this is a book arguing that corruption is good. And, and that's not what the book is arguing. Um, what the book is trying to argue is that we need to go beyond a good bad binary and understand that yes, certain forms of corruption are undoubtedly bad, like drinking bleach, but access money, this particular transactional form of corruption among elites is both good and bad. And so the right question we should ask is not whether corruption is good for growth. The right question we should ask is almost a normative question. Is capitalism good? Because the implication is that capitalism has never been possible without corruption. It's just that in advanced capitalist economy, that corruption became legalized, sophisticated, to the point of becoming invisible to the public. But it has never disappeared. And, and I think that is what people should be thinking about. This is dynamite stuff. Um, great, great. Thank you, Yuan Yuan. I mean, um, let's talk about the implications for everywhere else. I mean, you've got mm -hmm. this, yeah. So for example, is China sweet generous just because it's so big, because the money that's stolen stays in China, it doesn't zoom off to tax havens. To what extent could other countries look at this and say, yes, we need short-term, more effective corruption, and then an exit strategy or a legalization strategy, as you put it. I mean, what, what is there here for Malawi or for Peru? I would say, I, would, I think I would highlight um, three things. The first thing I would highlight is um, instead of asking the question of how developing countries can eradicate corruption, which in most cases is not feasible, even in the West, 
Perhaps the better question that we should be asking is, how did some countries avoid the most growth damaging type of corruption? And, 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 and channel corruption towards excess money, noting that it has side effects, as I said. But you know, if you had to pick the least of the, the least bad option, then how do we understand this process of transitioning from toxic drugs to steroids? How does that happen? And I think on that ground, we can take a lot of lessons from China and from actual history books that tell you how corruption and capitalism went hand in hand um, in the West. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing I think comes back to the normative issue, which is sort of implicit in the book and, and in my head. Um, I think we've reached a point in development where we have to ask ourselves, is capitalist growth the end? You know, what should we be rethinking capitalism? And a lot of people have been doing that in recent years, particularly with inequality, with discontent, with populism. You know, people have been asking, is is the capitalist model the end? Because we have seen that it's it's now crumbling in mature democracies. But I noticed that people never use the word corruption in this conversation. We talk about everything except corruption. And we need to bring that word in. Um, we have the problems of inequality and discontent in advanced capitalist systems because of corruption. It's just that we don't like to use the word. We think corruption is something for backward nations, but not for the first world. And we need to recognize that it exists. And the third thing I would stress is we need to recognize some fundamental differences between democracies and autocracies in the way they channel corruption. So if you look at America's Gilded Age, um, during the progressive era, the primary means for, for fighting corruption was, was bottom-up measures like transparency, uh, free media, um, independent prosecutors, and so forth. In China, what Xi has done since he took office in 2012 is top-down, coercive, aggressive inspections and arrests, right? 1.5 million officials disciplined under his charge. And that's because of the different means or tools that are available to leaders in autocracies versus in democracies. So we kind of need to consider the different menu of tools that are available in different political systems um, in dealing with corruption. But these are all, I mean, that's two different kinds of feedback loops which push mm. corruption away from certain kinds and towards other kinds, whether you do it through accountability or through coercion. The, the yes. aim is similar, right? So, the aim is similar, but the, but the means are different. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Mm. And I mean, one further question. That, that let's, let's go with the steroid metaphor, okay? So, okay. in fact, let's go with a very specific uh, user of steroids, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. So Schwarzenegger, you know, I, I, I've probably got myself into some terrible litigation problems. Let's suppose that he 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 didn't get to be, you know, uh, Mr. Universe just by um, uh, pumping iron, but he pumped some other things too. Um, what happens next? Because he's kind of downsized, literally, and, mm -hmm. and become, you know, a, a respected politician. Mm -hmm. China is in its pumping iron stage at the moment. 
Yes. Will it, does this end with a sort of overuse of steroids and a heart attack and a collapse, in which case Asamoglu and Robinson will say, see, we told you so. Or does it right. end with China graduating from grand corruption or, or uh, legalizing it, as you put it, and emerging as a, as a modern nation in that Western political science setting? Yeah. Do some crystal ball for us. Um, I think of this question, it's pretty clear that the leadership under Xi knows that they're in trouble. They actually are conscious of that. And they're trying to make that transition that you describe without the terrible crisis. And, and, and again, interesting that you mentioned Arthur Moklu and Robinson and their predictions of this you know, meltdown. Where did it happen? It happened in America in the 19th century. Um, there was the first Great Depression and that was directly linked to state bank collusions to the massive infrastructure that were built during those times. When was it? That, Sorry, my, my ignorance here. When, when did that first depression happen? Uh, the, let me see. The first Great Depression was 18... was... Sorry, I should... <laughs> I, I just want to make sure that I got the I think it was 18... The Panic of 1837. Oh wow! Okay. And then two years of two years later became the Depression of 1839, um, and this was this was in in the last chapter of my first book, and again got me to think about this. Um, and this depression was the result of state bank collusion. That collusion in turn enabled the construction of massive infrastructures like the Erie Canal. Uh, bridges, highways that paved the necessary foundation for America's economic boom. Um, and the causes of the meltdown are very similar to all of the alarm bells that we, we read about in China today. Mounting government debts, you know, a, a land and real estate bubble, and finally that burst in the U.S. And when that burst in the U.S., that forced the Constitution to change. And that was when America began to introduce things like a uniform tax code and began to introduce laws to forbid charters uh, where basically monopoly rights are sold to capitalists and, and bankers. So the process that Arthur Moklu and Robinson predicted did not happen in China yet. It happened in the West. It's just that in retelling the story, that part is whitewashed, right? And, and then we tell this fairy tale of, you know, how there were these inclusive and wonderful institutions, and, and that's how the first world became the first world. Um, and so in China, the leadership is well aware that they have all these brewing problems that could explode in a crisis. They know they have a debt crisis. They know they have a real estate bubble. They know there's overconstruction. And they know that there's so much excess money floating around that um, the political system is at risk as well because factions have become so enriched that they're not going to listen to Beijing. And so that is why Xi Jinping made anti-corruption the cornerstone of his legacy. It's the first thing he did when he came to office. Um, and he knows that he has to do something about this or the political and economic system could collapse. And the other thing he has to do is to, I mean, again, thinking back to, to, to the work on industrial policy and Harjun Chang, is, you know, in countries that tried to do protectionism badly, 
mm-hmm. which was captured by elites who were benefiting from it. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and it went very badly. Uh, the countries that did well, the state managed to retain a certain you know, um, embedded autonomy, that whole sort of idea that the state managed to retain a distance, despite the flow of money to and fro, the state was not captured by the private sector. And you'd think mm-hmm. that in China, that's that's should be fairly straightforward. The state is so much stronger than the private sector, it won't get captured. Uh, do you Are you optimistic on that? Um... Yeah, I think it's. I think in China's case, because uh, because it's a single party and politicians are very strong, it's more of a symbiotic relationship, and it's definitely hierarchical. As in, politicians are more powerful than the capitalists, but it is a symbiotic relationship. And so, if you look at the cases that I described, when a politician falls, the capitalists fall with him. Right, so they are all in one group together. Uh, is that state capture? Um, yeah, there is to to the extent that the politicians are giving favors and privileges and deals to the capitalists. Um, but I think it is more it is a more asymmetrical relationship than we would find in a capitalist democracy. It's fantastic. Yunyuan, that's been absolutely amazing. Uh, We could go on all day, but I think I'm going to uh, end it there. Urge people to read the book, to read all the reviews. It's been reviewed in The Economist. It's been all over the place. It's it's going to be a big seller, I'm sure. Um, Thanks very much for coming on From Poverty to Power. Well, thank you very much for having me. It is always very stimulating to speak with you, and, and I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you.